Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mid-East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. Many have framed the battle lines in the geopolitics of the emerging new world order as the 21st century's great game. It's a game that aims to shape the creation of a new Eurasia-centered world built on the likely fusion of Europe and Asia into what former Portuguese Europe minister Bruno Massaes calls a supercontinent. For now, the great game pits China, together with Russia, Turkey, and Iran, against the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. The two camps compete for influence, if not dominance, in a swath of land that stretches from the China Sea to the Atlantic coast of Europe. The geopolitical flashpoints are multiple. They range from China, the China Sea, to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Central European nations, and most recently far beyond, with Russia, China, and Turkey supporting embattled Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. On one level, the rivalry resembles Risk, a popular game of diplomacy, conflict, and conquest, playing on a board depicting a political map of the Earth, divided into 42 territories which are grouped into six continents. Multiple players command armies that seek to capture territories, engage in a complex dance as they strive for advantage, and seek to compensate for weaknesses. Players form opportunistic alliances that could change at any moment. Potential black swans threaten to disrupt. Largely underrated in debates about the great game is the fact that increasingly there is a tacit meeting of the minds among world leaders, as well as conservative and far-right politicians and activists that frames the rivalry. The rise of civilizationalism and the civilizational state that seeks its legitimacy in a distinct civilization rather than the nation-state's concept of territorial integrity, language, and citizenry. The trend towards civilizationalism benefits from the fact that 21st century autocracy and authoritarianism vests survival not only in repression of dissent and denial of freedom of expression, but also maintaining at least some of the trappings of pluralism that can include representational bodies with no or severely limited powers, toothless opposition groups, government-controlled non-governmental organizations, and degrees of accountability. It creates the basis for an unspoken consensus on the values that would underwrite a new world order, on which men like Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Viktor Orban, Mohammed bin Salman, and Donald Trump find a degree of common ground. If anything, it is this tacit understanding that in the shaping of a new world order constitutes the greatest threat to liberal values, such as human and minority rights. By the same token, 
the tacit agreement on fundamental values reduces the great game to a power struggle over spheres of influence and the sharing of the pie, as well as a competition of political systems in which concepts such as democracy are hollowed out. Intellectually, the concept of civilizationalism puts into context much of what is currently happening. This includes the cyclical crisis of the last decade as a result of a loss of confidence in leadership and the system, the rise of right and left-wing populism, the wave of Islamophobia and increased anti-Semitism, the death of multiculturalism with the brutal crackdown on Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang as its most extreme expression, the Saudi and Russian alliance with ultra-conservative Christian groups that propagate traditional family values, and Russian meddling in Western elections. Analysts explain these developments by pointing to a host of separate and disparate factors, some of which were linked in vague ways. Analysts pointed, among others, to the 2008 financial crisis, jihadist violence, and the emergence of the Islamic State, the war in Syria, and a dashing of hope with the rollback of the achievements of the 2011 popular Arab revolts. These developments are and were best accelerators, not sparks or initiators. Similarly, analysts believe that the brilliance of Osama bin Laden and the 9-11 attacks on New York's World Trade Towers and the Pentagon in Washington was the killing of multiculturalism in one fell and brutal swoop. Few grasped just how consequential that would be. A significant eye-opener was the recent attack on the mosques in Christchurch. New Zealand, much like Norway in the wake of the attacks by Andrei Brevik, stands out as an antidote to civilizationalism with its inclusive and compassionate response. The real eye-opener, however, was a New Zealand intelligence official who argued that New Zealand, a member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, alongside the United States, Britain, Australia, and Canada, had missed the emergence of a far or alt-right that created breeding grounds for violence because of Washington's singular post-9-11 focus on what popularly is described as Islamic terrorism. That remark casts a whole different light on George W. Bush, Bush's war on terror and the subsequent war against the Islamic State. Those wars are rooted as much in the response to 9-11, the 7-7 London attacks, and other jihadist occurrences as they are in witting or unwitting civilizationalism. The global war on terror has become a blueprint for violence against Muslims. When there isn't a shooting at a mosque, there's a drone strike in Somalia. When one Friday prayer goes by without incident, an innocent Muslim is detained on material support for terrorism charges, or another is killed by law enforcement. Maybe a baby is added to a no-fly list, said human rights activist Maha Hilal. Scholars Barbary Perry 
and Scott Pointing warned more than a decade ago in a study of the fallout in Canada of the war on terror, that in declining adequately to recognize and to act against hate crimes and in actually modeling anti-Muslim bias by practicing discrimination and institutional racism through ethnic targeting, racial profiting, and the like, the state conveys a sort of ideological license to individuals, groups, and institutions to perpetrate and perpetuate racial hatred. The same is true for the various moves in Europe that have put women at the front line of what in the West are termed cultural wars, but in reality are civilizational wars, involving efforts to ban conservative women's dress and endeavors to create a European form of Islam. In that sense, Viktor Orban's definition of Hungary as a Christian state in which there is no room for the other is the extreme expression of this trend. It's a scary picture. It raises the specter of Samuel Huntington's class of civilizations. Yet it is everything but. Fact is that economic and geopolitical interests are but, but part of the explanation for the erecting of a Muslim wall of, science, of silence when it comes to developments in Xinjiang. The organization of Islamic countries' recent criticism of the treatment of Muslim minorities in various parts of the world, but praising of China for its policy. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's alliance with a man like Viktor Orban and is joining the right-wing chorus that has turned Jewish financier and philanthropist George Soros into a bogeyman, or the rise of militant anti-Muslim Buddhism and Hinduism. In fact, the signs of this were already visible with the alliance between Israel and the evangelists who believe in doomsday on the day of judgment if Jews fail to convert to Christianity, as well as the recent forging of ties between various powerful Islamic groups or countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the evangelist movement. Civilizationalism is frequently based on myths erected on a falsification and rewriting of history to serve the autocrat or authoritarian's purpose. Men like Trump, Orban, and Erdogan project themselves as nationalist heroes who protect the nation from some invading horde. In his manifesto, Brenton Tarrant, the perpetrator of the Christchurch attacks, bought into the notion of an illusionary invader. Muslims, he wrote, are the most despised group of invaders in the West. Attacking them receives the greatest level of support. He also embraced the myths of an epic, centuries-long struggle between the white Christian West and Islam, with its peak of the defeat of the Ottomans in 1683 at the ports of Vienna. Inscribed on his weapons were the names of Serbs who had fought the Ottomans, as well as references to the battle for Vienna. To Tarrant, the Ottomans' defeat in Vienna symbolized the victory of the mythical notion of a world of inviolable, homogeneous nations. The idea 
that medieval societies are this paragon of unblemished whiteness is just ridiculous. It would be hilarious if it weren't so awful, so, said Paul Sturtevant, author of the Middle Ages in the popular imagination. Much like popular perception of the battle for Vienna, Terence's view of history had little relation to reality. A multicultural empire, the Ottomans laid siege to Vienna in cooperation with Catholic French King Louis XIV and Hungarian Protestant noble Imre Tolkoli, as well as Ukrainian Cossacks. Vienna's Habsburg rulers were supported not only by Polish armies, but also Muslim Tatar horsemen. The Battle of Vienna was a multicultural drama, an example of the complex and paradoxical twists of European history. There never has been such a thing as united Christian armies of Europe, said historian Doug Hevjonsrud. Literary scholar Ian Alman argues that notions of a clash of civilizations bear little resemblance to the almost hopelessly complex web of shifting power relations, feudal alliances, ethnic sympathies, and historical grudges that shape much of European history. The fact remains that in the history of Europe, for hundreds of years, Muslims and Christians shared common cultures, spoke common languages, and did not necessarily see one another as strange or other, Elman said. That was evident not only in the Battle of Vienna, but also when the Ottomans and North Africa's Arab rulers rallied around Christ Queen Elizabeth I of England after the Pope excommunicated her in 1570 for breaking with Catholicism and establishing a Protestant outpost. Elizabeth and her Muslim supporters argued that Protestantism and Islam were united in their rejection of idol worship, including Catholicism with its saints, shrines, and relics. In a letter in 1579 to Ottoman Sultan Murad III, Elizabeth described herself as the most mighty defender of the Christian faith against all kinds of idolatries. In doing so, she sought to capitalize on the fact that the Ottomans had justified their decision to grant Lutherans preferred commercial treatment on the basis of their shared beliefs. Similarly, historian Marvin Power challenges the projection of Chinese history as civilizational justification of the party leader's one-man rule by Xi Jinping and Fudan University international relations scholar Zhang Weiwei. Amazon's blurb on Zhang's best-selling The China Wave, Rise of the Civilizational State, summarizes the scholar's rendition of Xi Jinping's vision succinctly. China's rise, according to Zhang, is not the rise of an ordinary country, but the rise of a different type of country, a country sui generis, a civilizational state, a new model of development, and a new political discourse, which indeed questions many of the Western assumptions about democracy, good governance, and human rights. It's a model 
that replaces Western political ideas with a mo model that traces its roots to Confucianism and meritocratic tra tra traditions. In a sweeping study entitled China and England, the pre-industrial struggle for justice in word and image, Powers demonstrates that Chinese history and culture is a testimony to advocacy of upholding individual rights, fair treatment, state responsibility to its people, and freedom of expression, rather than civilizationalism, hierarchy, and authoritarianism. Powers extensively documents the work of influential Chinese philosophers, writers, poets, artists, and statesmen throughout the centuries, dating back to the 3rd century BC, who employed rational arguments to construct governance systems and take legal action in support of their advocacy. Powers noticed that protection of free speech was embedded in edicts of the Han Emperor Wen in the 2nd century BC. They legitimized personal attacks on the emperor and encouraged taxpayers to expose government mistakes. The intellectuals and statesmen were the Chinese counterpart of contemporary liberal thinkers. The apparent contradictions and the glue that ties these developments together is what amounts to a civilizationalism-based tacit agreement among the world's autocrats, authoritarians, and the liberal leaders on the fundamental values that should shape a new world order. Adherence to those values include the usual suspects, China's Xi, Hungary's Orban, Turkey's Erdogan, Trump, and Russia's Putin. In a lot of ways, Russia and the Russian Orthodox Church have understood the utility of civilizationalism far better than others and made it work for them, certainly prior to the Russian intervention in Syria. At a gathering several years ago, before the Russian intervention, Russia achieved a feat that seemed almost unthinkable. Russia brought to the same table, at a gathering in Marrakesh, every stripe of Sunni and Shiite political Islam. The purpose was not to foster dialogue among the various strands of political Islam. The purpose was to forge an alliance with a Russia that emphasized its civilizational roots in the Russian Orthodox Church and the common values it had with conservative and ultra-conservative Islam. To achieve its goal, Russia was represented at the gathering by some of its most senior officials and prominent journalists whose belief systems were steeped in the values projected by the church. To the nodding heads of the participating Muslims, the Russians asserted that Western culture was in decline, while non-Western culture was on the rise, that gays and gender equality threatened a woman's right to remain at home and serve her family, and that Iran and Saudi Arabia should be the model for women's rights. They argued that conservative Russian Orthodox values, like the Sharia, offered a moral and ethical guideline that guarded against speculation and economic bubbles. The Trump administration has embarked on a similar course by recently citing in the United Nations Commission 
on the status of women with proponents of ultra-conservative values such as Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Iraq, and several African countries. Together, they sought to prevent the expansion of rights for girls, women, and LGBT people and weaken international support for the Beijing Declaration, a landmark 1995 agreement that stands as an internationally recognized progressive blueprint for women's rights. The U.S. position in the Commission strokes with efforts by conservative Christians to reverse civilizational U.S. courts decisions in favor of rights for women, minorities, members of the LGBT community, Muslims, immigrants, and refugees. It is what conservative historian and foreign policy analyst Robert Kagan describes as the war within traditionally liberal society. It is that civilizational war that provides the rationale for Russian meddling in elections, a rationale that goes beyond geopolitics. It also explains Trump's seeming empathy with Putin and other autocrats and authoritarians. The U.S. alignment with social conservatives contributes to the rise of the civilizational state. Putin's elevation of the position of the church and Xi's concentration of absolute power in the Communist Party strengthens institutions that symbolize the rejection of liberal values because they serve as vehicles that dictate what individuals should believe and how they should behave. These vehicles enable civilizationalism by strengthening traditional hierarchies defined by birth, class, family, and gender, and delegitimizing the rights of minorities and minority views. The alignment suggests that the days were over when Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov trumpeted that the West had lost its monopoly on the globalization process because there was a market of ideas in which different value systems were forced to compete. Similarly, conservative author Christopher Codwell asserted that Orban's civilizational concept of an authoritarian Christian democracy echoed the kind of democracy that prevailed in the United States 60 years ago, prior to the civil rights movement and the 1968 student protests. Orban's Hungary epitomizes the opportunism that underlies the rise of the civilizational state as a mechanism to put one's mark on the course of history and retain power. In Orban's terms, civilizational means not Christianity as such, but those Christian organizations that have bought into his authoritarian rule. Those that haven't are being starved of state and public funding. Civilizationalism's increased currency is evident from Beijing to Washington with stops in between. Trump and Stephen Bannon, his former strategy advisor's beef with China or Russia, is not civilizational. It's about geopolitics and geoeconomic power sharing. In terms of values, they think in equally civilizational terms. In a speech in Warsaw in 2017, Trump declared that the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive, but assured his audience 
our civilization will triumph. Bannon has established an academy for the Judeo-Christian West in a former monastery in the Italian town of Colepardo. The academy intends to groom the next generation of far-right populist politicians. It is initiatives like Bannon's Academy and the growing popularity of civilizational thinking in democracies, current and erstwhile, rather than autocracies, that contributes most significantly to an emerging trend that transcends traditional geopolitical dividing lines and sets the stage for the imposition of authoritarian values in an emerging new world order. Interference in open and fair elections, support for far and right ultra-conservative family value-driven Western groups, and influence peddling on both sides of the Atlantic and in Eurasia at large by the likes of China, Russia, and the Gulf states serves the purpose of Bannon and his European associates. Civilizationalists have put in place the building blocks of a new world order rooted in their value system. These blocks include the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO, that groups Russia, China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. The grouping is centered on the Chinese principle of non-interference in the sovereign affairs of others, which amounts to support for the region's autocratic regimes. The SCO's Tashkent-based internal security coordination apparatus, or regional anti-terrorist structure, has similarly adopted China's definition of the three evils of terrorism, extremism, and separatism that justify its brutal crackdown in Xinjiang. Proponents of the civilizational state see the nation-state and Western dominance as an aberration of history. British author and journalist Martin Jacques and international relations scholar Jason Charbon argue that China's history as a nation-state is at best 150 years old, while its civilizational history dates back thousands of years. Similarly, intellectual supporters of Narendra Modi's BJP party project India as a Hindu-based civilization rather than a multicultural nation-state. Modi's Minister of Civil Aviation, Jayan Sinha, suggests that at independence, India should have embraced its own culture instead of Western concepts of scientific rationalism. Talking to the Financial Times, Sinha preached cultural particularism. In our view, heritage precedes the state. People feel their heritage is under siege. We have a faith-based view of the world versus the rational, scientific view, Sinha said. Arab autocracies like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Egypt have stopped short of justifying their rule in civilizational terms, but have enthusiastically embraced the civilizational state rejection of Western notions of democracy and human rights. One could argue that Saudi Arabia's four-decade-long global propagation of ultra-conservative strands of Islam 
or the UAE's effort to mold an Islam that is apolitical and adheres to the principle of obedience to the ruler is civilizational in nature. Islamic law scholar Muhammad Fadl argues that one reason why Arab autocracies have not overtly embraced civilizationalism, even though they in many ways fit the mold, is the absence of a collective memory in post-Ottoman Arab lands. To explicitly embrace civilizationalism as a concept, Arab states would have to cloak themselves in the civilizational mantle of either pan-Islam or pan-Arabism, which in turn would require regional integration. One could argue that the attempt by Saudi Arabia and the UAE to impose their will on the Middle East, for example with the boycott of Qatar, is an attempt to create a basis for a regional integration that they would dominate. The rise of the civilizational state with its corporatist traits raises the specter of a new world order whose value system equates dissent with treason, views an independent press as the enemy of the people, and relegates minorities to the status of at best tolerated communities with no inherent rights. It is a value system that enabled Trump to undermine confidence in the media as the fourth estate that speaks truth to power and has allowed the president and Fox News to turn the broadcaster into the United States' closest equivalent to state-controlled television. Trump's portrayal of the media as the bogeyman has legitimized populist assaults on the press across the globe, irrespective of political system, from China and the Philippines to Turkey and Hungary. It has facilitated Prince Mohammed's effort to fuse the kingdom's ultra-conservative interpretation of Islam with a nationalist sentiment that depicts critics as traitors rather than infidels. In the final analysis, the tacit understanding on a civilizationalism-based value system means that it's the likes of New Zealand, Norway, and perhaps Canada that are putting up their hands and saying, not me, instead of me too. Perhaps Germany is one of the countries that is seeking to stake out its place on a middle ground. The problem is that the ones that are not making their voices heard are the former bastions of liberalism, like the United States and much of Europe. They increasingly are becoming part of the problem, not part of the solution. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.